You've attended council hearings in person. You've tuned in to our televised proceedings on Channel 13. Now, you have the chance to listen to us on the radio as we demystify the work of the people who do it. This is not a council hearing. This is Hearing the Council with your host, Josh Gibson. Thank you, deep voice person with the funky backbeat. Indeed, this is not a council hearing. This is Hearing the Council. You can't have a government without a council, so you can't have a government radio station without a council show. This is it. We're coming to you from the headquarters of the Office of Cable TV, Film, Music, and Entertainment, which is also the historic headquarters of Black Entertainment Television. So it's an honor to be here. Dearly beloved, we're gathered here today to celebrate this thing called the Council. I'm Josh Gibson, Director of Communications to the Council. You may also know me as the Council's voice on social media, at Council of D.C. If you don't follow us already, please do so immediately. Here at the Council, our communications goal is to engage with residents in an informative, conversational, and sometimes even enjoyable way. You know if you follow us on Twitter, we're believers in the Mary Poppins School of Communications. A spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. We want to make it easy for average residents to understand what the Council does. We're demystifying our work and the people who do it. Remember, the D.C. Council is just like your workplace, except with the dais. On the show, we'll try to keep things light, offbeat, informal, and interesting. You'll learn about policy, learn about people, learn about history, and learn about the institution. Now, without any further ado, let me introduce you to our guest today, a council member at large, David Grasso. Hey, Josh. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming and uh, being indulgent with your time. I appreciate it. Of course. Um, in these early interviews, we're trying to get to know people, so we're kind of digging back into the, uh, the archives, digging back into history to, to give people a sense of a bit of who you are and where you came from. And I think you have one of the more interesting backgrounds. Uh, you're a native Washingtonian, so started out urban, but then you went and you lived on a farm for a time. That's correct. Talk a little yeah. bit about that. So I was born at Georgetown Hospital. Uh, my parents then had, um, an, an, I guess, an interesting change in the way that they were approaching things when they were exposed to liberation theology, which is a Catholic social justice teaching movement that happened uh, in the 60s and decided uh, one of two things they needed to do, either move into the inner city further or move to a farm and live off the land more. So my father won out that debate, and my mom and dad and all my brothers and sisters and I moved out to a farm in Lovettsville, Virginia. Okay. Uh, it was a 65-and-a-half-acre all-organic farm, and we lived there for a little over 10 years uh, in my formative years, really from when I was about five years until I was about 15. And this would have been, at the not, not to date either of us, but this would have been earlier in the organic uh, period of farming. That wasn't necessarily Absolutely. the way people were doing things. Yeah, my mom was uh, at the forefront of this work. And in fact, uh, the work that we did on the farm, I think, set the standard for what people do now on farms. There were some other farms in the area doing similar work. Uh, Wheatland Vegetable Farms was one of them uh, with the planks. But the, the fact is, is that my mom was the person that was standing at the edge of our fields screaming at the planes that were spraying pesticides on the fields next to ours saying don't turn on those pesticides until you get off my property type thing and you know we had animals we had gardens we did all sorts of composting she also started a food bank in Loudoun County Virginia because we had so much vegetables that we had to actually share it uh, my responsibility on the farm as a as a kid was to take care of the pigs I got up every morning and fed the pigs got to come home from work and feed the pigs 
We did an annual pig slaughtering on the farm, which was a fascinating experience growing up. Um, so that uh, that lasted until the early 80s. Uh, then my parents uh, divorced, uh, and I'm not sure if it was the stress of the farm or what, but uh, in the end, my mom moved us back into the city. Uh, so the, then she started a, an alternative community here in the District of Columbia. It's called the Assisi Community after St. Francis of Assisi. It's on Rock Creek Church Road, right off of Georgia Avenue. And so I grew up the rest of the way in community. They're still there. They have two houses, uh, over 20 long-term residents that live with, uh, with together in community. She's taken a vow of poverty, and she is a committed social justice worker here in D.C., but also internationally. Gotcha. So the apple literally doesn't fall far from the tree. Not with my mom. She was taking me to uh, protests on the streets of D.C. back when I was a little kid and uh, continues to join me today when we're out there trying to make the world a better place. So what kind of uh, what kind of crops did you have on the farm? A little of everything, animals as well. We had everything. We had milk cows, chickens, pigs, sheep. We had uh, lots of vegetables. Uh, we grew corn every year. We did a big corn picking party. We picked ten acres of corn by hand. We would invite all of their city friends out, and they would pick corn with us. We did square dances and parties in the barn. We had all sorts of crops. And the one that I think was most interesting, to be honest with you, my dad's Italian. And so my dad insisted that we have enough tomatoes to basically sink a ship. So we grew over 350 tomato plants every single year, and we canned all those tomatoes. So we had jars of tomatoes three years after we moved off the farm that we were still (laughs) eating and making sauce with and and other things. I remember taking the last jar off the the basement shelf uh, and saying, well, this is it. And it was literally three years later. And has that pretty much wrecked you for industrial American food the rest of your life? Well, you should know that one of the first bills I introduced in the city council was the uh, urban farming bill, uh, which tries to encourage the, a more local production of our food here in the District of Columbia because I really believe in that. I think it's a good job creator, and also uh, it's it's healthier for you. And so I have a hard time drinking milk off the shelf. We had milk cows on the farm. Uh, we had two Guernsey milk cows. And that fresh milk coming right off the farm is something that you just can't replace. I also now get all of my eggs from a farm, local farms, because the difference between an egg that you get at the grocery store and one that you get directly off a farm is an enormous difference. If people haven't seen the difference, they should try it out. Oh, yeah. I mean, in Europe, eggs are shelf-stable because they forget what it is. They don't do something to the eggs that wrecks them that we do in the States. Um, and it is a different. Yeah, we grew up with the eggs uh, that we collected out of our chicken coop sitting on the counter. And you just didn't think you needed to do anything else with them. Now they do all sorts of hormones and things like that and make the eggs last longer. Uh, but at the same time, they're not as good for you. And, and they probably are also does some, do some harm. And did you remain a pork eater through the entire uh, pig raising process, or did you? Uh... I did. I love pork. I like bacon. I, you know, the thing is, is uh, I never really went away from that. My mom, though, uh, raised us on an incredibly balanced diet. Uh, so we got a really good foundation there. We didn't eat meat every day. We also were very cognizant of all the vegetables that we were growing to, to eat. And you know, it was it was a privilege to grow up in that environment, and I was uh, equally as happy, though, to leave that environment. I was 14 when we left, and I was very happy to no longer be feeding the pigs uh, in the morning or in the afternoon. And I was even more excited to have a corner market uh, right down the street that I, I could go and, and, and get a, a, a drink or some food at. 
but probably nothing that compared to what you could have gotten. Uh, it didn't compare, but boy, it, was it convenient. Well, yeah, what it, what it lost <laughs> in uh, quality, it made up for inconvenience. Absolutely, and it's still there, right there at the corner of Warder and Rock Creek Church Road. Gotcha. So what I wrote down next to your bio was intermittently urban. So you've talked about you were urban, then you weren't urban, then you were urban again. Then talk a little bit about your college experience, because I think that's pretty distinctive. Well, uh, right after high school, I did not go to college. I, I tried. I tried to go to St. Francis College in Loretto, Pennsylvania, and it uh, didn't work out so good. I, I was not ready for school. So I came back to D.C. One of the things I did when I first moved into the city was I got a job almost immediately at a local establishment called Colonel Brooks Tavern in Northeast D.C. Yeah, so well known. I actually worked in that restaurant as a dishwasher, busboy, waiter, manager, bartender in that sequence uh, for five years. And so I didn't actually leave the city until January of 1993 uh, when I was 23 years old to go and further my education. I had done it here. But now when I was in D.C. working at Colonel Brooks, I still have my mom uh, over my shoulder, my conscience, so to speak, saying, well, you only work Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday nights. What are you doing with the rest of your time? So I volunteered at the Sojourners Neighborhood Center. I volunteered at Christ House over on Columbia Road. I volunteered with a group called Visitation. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, not Visitation. Uh, Voices on the Border. Voices on the Border was a group that worked with Honduran a community that accepted Salvadoran refugees from the war in El Salvador. And I actually went down there three times during that time. I celebrated my 20th birthday in El Salvador when I was there visiting this community. Um, so my mom kept me active. Uh, then I finally decided it was time to leave the bar business, and I joined a group called the Brethren Volunteer Service, which uh, only required one year of service, which was appealing, and second, uh, didn't require a college degree, which was appealing because I didn't have one at the time. And they sent me down to San Antonio, Texas. And in San Antonio, I spent a full year as a full-time volunteer working at a homeless shelter for women and children called Visitation House. Uh, the experience was uh, life-changing for me. Uh, it really formed who I am. I got paid $45 a month, plus room and board. I stayed at a Catholic worker house, another homeless shelter in the community, and then would volunteer every day at Visitation House. And um, frankly, the best thing about that time was it's when I met my wife, Sarah. She was also a volunteer at Visitation House, and we've been together ever since. Yep. So if you're listening, singles, if you're a native Washingtonian and you want to marry another native Washingtonian, please go halfway across the country yeah, to do volunteer yeah. <laughs> service because that's the way to make it happen. Volunteer service is very key to find people that are like you. I can tell you, though, she did pick me up at the airport. And the funny story is the, the volunteer program gave me a little index card with a description of who was picking me up at the airport. And they said a tall, dark, attractive woman named Sarah. And they had scratched out tall. Because uh, she's almost five feet tall. And I and I, I laughed. I said, I showed her that. She goes, oh, man, almost. <laughs> right, I have all the adjectives to cross out. Tall is the first one I'd be willing to let go. <laughs> so, But in the end, we hit it off. And uh, we've been, we'll celebrate 20 years of marriage this, uh, this July 4th. And I have uh, also an attractive wife who did a year of uh, volunteer service. Oh, I, where that's did not, she that's volunteer? That's not how I met her. Um, I knew you were going to ask me that, and I'm blanking on the name of the organization. It was in D.C. Her house was on 16th Street. I think it's transformational. I think, you know, 
having the opportunity to give back is really important in life, but do it at a young age. Uh, and really, I, at that point, I decided to go to college. So it was during that time that I made the decision that I could further my education meaningfully and get something out of it. And I went back to college at that point. And you know, that time, that break, I also have I often have young people ask me about that. And I say, you have to do what's best for you. But in the end, having a little time to grow up, having a little time to think about what you believe in in, in the world, and then to pursue your education makes a lot of sense. Uh, if you're not going to do it right before you go into college, maybe before graduate school, but give back a little. Basically, what I'm taking away from this is you were an Obama child 20 years early, <laughs> where you were eating organic food from the garden. You took a gap year before you went to college. I took a five-year five gap. But, but, but I graduated from college 10 years after I graduated from high school. But mm -hmm. I think there's a story there. It's important to stick with it. It's important to go get your education. Uh, it's um, something that I wasn't ready for right out of high school. I, I barely graduated. Uh, people know this. Out of high school, I, my grandmother, I'll never forget it, my mom's mom, came to my room one day and she said, do you have a second? I said, yes. She goes, um, are you going to graduate from high school? I said, yes, I think I am. She goes, well, you know, your cousin's graduation is the same day down in Virginia Beach, um, but I think I'm going to go to yours because I didn't think you would actually graduate from high school. <laughs> so, you know, it was kind of a backhand comment from my own grandmother, but she did come to my graduation. Sure. Yeah, but you, I mean, kudos to you because you do seem to have been ahead of the curve on a couple of things that now seem commonplace. Kudos to my mother. When, when I went to school, I mean, college was grades 13 to 16. You just, after grade 12, you went to 13 and maybe right. through 18 or 20 or 24. But I do think I see the value yeah, of taking time. that break. And, you know, once I got in, I went to Earlham College, which is a small Quaker school in Indiana. I got a degree in philosophy, a minor in legal studies. I got a 3.9 GPA. I was prepared to be there. And then I went straight through to law school after that. I was like, all right. I wasn't sure what I was going to do with my philosophy degree, but uh, needless to say, I went right into law school, and so I ended up doing six and a half straight years uh, in school. Yeah, but it seems like once the once the the hook of higher education is in you, it it stays in you. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I need to do a spreadsheet. I'm, the more uh, council members I interview, the more I'm finding out. But there are very few of you who were natural high school heads of your student government and went straight into college and everyone said, wow, that's the one. That's what I'm going to keep my eye on. So many of you took gap time, struggled in school, and then at various points, you the light went on and you know uh, the rest is history. But I, I think it'd be inspirational if more kids in school saw the struggles y'all yeah. had been through, because I don't think it's common knowledge. And the majority, if not the totality of you, seem to have come up that way. I, you know, I just think it means that there's many paths to move forward and that you can't uh, fit everybody into one box and think that that's the only way forward. And I think that's one of the lessons I've learned in my life, but also that I try to bring to my work. You know, I'm the chair of the Committee on Education, and I spend a lot of my time trying to understand the issues that students face, the issues that teachers are facing, and trying to figure out how we can do a better job at what we're doing. But uh, that goes back to recognizing that not everyone fits into the same particular box that we want them to fit into when it comes to education. Yeah, I mean, we should we should take your nameplate on the dais and add a little, my grandma was surprised I graduated from <laughs> high school. <laughs> I think that led you a little street cred. Uh, one thing, before I lose my train of thought, the time at uh, Colonel Brooks Tavern, How? what was the time between when you left there and the terrible homicide that was there? It was a few years uh, after I left. It w I, I did know one of the people that was killed. 
It was a tragedy. It certainly reverberated across the city. I was in, uh, I think I was in Indiana when it happened in undergrad at the time. Um, and interestingly, this was like at the beginning of the internet coming on board, right? So mm -hmm. the way I found out about it was somebody called me and told me about it, and then my mom sent me news clips in the mail, you know, to let me know what mm -hmm. had happened. I came home, of course, to support my friends, but uh, the, the restaurant never recovered after that. And, and uh, you know, it was a, a long battle for them to try to recover, but uh, that's a tragedy that you really can't recover from as a business. And it was sad because... Colonel Brooks is a, a, an amazing part of the community in Brookland for so many years. It was the place where everybody could go and, and feel welcome. Everyone could go and engage in good community. Um, I loved working there. And I do have to say there is a restaurant in, in the neighborhood that has done a good job providing that service now, which is Brookland's Finest. Um, I, you know, I go there, I get a similar feeling. Mm -hmm. um, the food's a little better even, but uh, you, know, you get the same feeling that this neighborhood is a strong neighborhood. It's why my wife and I bought our house in Brookland ultimately because we wanted to be a part of that community. Is Ward 5, is it, I was trying to think this through, which ward has the most council members, current council members living in? Is it five or six? In Ward 5, you have myself, uh, of course, Councilmember McDuffie, Councilmember Bonds, uh, it might be it now. And you I have think. three and six, I think. You have you Allen, have Silverman, S Mendelssohn. Yes, and six. So that might be a tie. Okay. We got to break. I don't know how. Got to break that tie. I need to <laughs> make one word. Councilor White word. lives in four or three. Um, and then I'm just thinking of the at large members. So, you know, I, I think that's it. So. Yeah, and the other ward members presumably live in their wards. Oh, they better. Right. They better. <laughs> so I want to figure that out. Uh, so you were a philosophy major. Yes. college. Now, there's two ways of looking at a philosophy major. One is that if you think like a philosopher, you can never stop thinking like a philosopher and you stay in sort of a silver tower world. The other point of view is if you never study that way, you know what the real world is like, but you can never th put that additional layer over it. Do, do you, I presume you're in the second camp. Do you feel like there's a, a, a different way you can look at things having had that very sort of abstract I think that my learning. degree in philosophy prepared me better for my job today than my law degree did, to be honest with you. I, I loved my law classes and really was interested in that work, but the practicality of a philosophy degree, applying that to my work in the council, it, I always refer back to uh, two classes I took. One was the philosophy of everyday life, and another one was a, a, a 101 course on civil disobedience, which was an interesting uh, study. We studied it for an entire semester of the concepts of what does it mean to do civil disobedience. But you start to use the construct of the way you learn how to think in your everyday work. And I just think it's fantastic. And I did not do the kind of the traditional or the new way of doing things in the philosophy degree is more of a logic analysis. We did a more of a historic look. So we started all the way back with Socrates and worked our way all the way up and did that over the four years in, in school. So this was a, an approach that just gave you a lot of access to a lot of different thinkers. You know, I took an entire course on Kant. Um, I did another one called the Homeric Banquet where we read the Iliad, the Odyssey, and the Aeneid, and we studied their philosophies. We did a lot of work on Spinoza, on Locke, I mean, all these philosophers over the time. And what it does, I think, is prepare, prepare you, and it certainly prepared me, to not look at something just in one way, but to be able to see all the different aspects, connect the dots, and then do an analysis from there. 
Was there ever, I, I know you mentioned the two classes that were particularly relevant, was there ever one moment when you were on the council where you were like, this is a philosophy moment? Putting well, you on the spot, it's not really know, fair, but I'm just wondering if there was ever a moment where you were like, this is it. I, I had the opportunity, I had two classes uh, in addition to the two I mentioned where I use regularly and think about the, the role that my class played. One, I took a class on civil rights history um, with a, an amazing professor at Earlham who went from 17, I mean, uh, 1865, 1870 up until 1980. And it was just a beautiful class that taught me a lot about the history of civil rights, of uh, African-American history in, this, you know, in the United States post-Civil War up to the current time. And she called it the Civil Rights Movement because it really started during Reconstruction and worked its way through. I use that on a regular basis. Another one I took was called His the, the Vietnam History and Literature, and it was taught by a Vietnam vet and a poetry teacher who protested the Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And they co-taught this class, and it was incredible. And it was, um, it, 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 I'm constantly reminded of that because of the little kind of confluence of circumstances that led up to the Vietnam War. So there were lots of small things that eventually caused us to end up in that horrible war. And it reminded me that every decision I make on the council could have an impact down the road um, that is negative or positive, and that we have to be cognizant of the fact that all the things we do matter. And um, that's a philosophical approach, no doubt. Absolutely. My, my favorite uh, factoid about Earlham College is that uh, probably my favorite TV show is Mysteries at the Museum on the History Channel. And Don Wildman, who is the host yeah. of that show, <laughs> is an great. Earlham College grad. So I, I have a lot of Earlham grads in my life. My sister graduated. My brother graduated. I have in-laws that all graduated from there. My niece, Katie Adele, is there right now. I mean, once you are exposed to Earlham College... You really feel like this is a place where you can get a good education. It's always in the top when it comes to the place where other professors of college professors send their kids. Um, it's mm -hmm. a it's a good price, but it's also a great school if you can deal with a small school. It's only a thousand students, so it does uh, it does constrain your. I actually got to go to college with my wife Sarah. She'd already graduated from college when I met her, so she came with me to Earlham and got her master's in divinity at Earlham School of Religion. And so uh, we went together, and, and that helped me. I lived off campus. I was older, and it really helped me focus. I'll say one other thing about it. I think it's really important. I was in a philosophy class my first year with Peter Suber, who was the, also my advisor and also a great philosophy professor at Earlham. And I wrote my first paper. And I brought my first paper home after I got the grade on it, which was a C-. And it was written all over in red ink, you know, the typical. And here I thought I was smart. I thought I could write. I thought I was talented at this stuff. And I showed it to Sarah and my wife, and I just said, I, I don't even know what I did wrong. I mean, this is outrageous. And she took the time to sit down with me and to teach me how to write in a way that allowed me to get my thoughts onto paper in a meaningful way. So what was happening was I wasn't getting my thoughts onto paper in a way that the professor could understand what I was saying. This, I think, is a challenge that many, 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 many people have. How do you end up being able to translate what you're feeling, what you're thinking, into a way that can be presented to the public, to your family, to your friends? Uh, that's important to learn, and um, I was lucky to have Sarah teach me that, and she did it <laughs> a lot in order to get me to where I could get good grades. Um, but just because you can't write or just because you can't get your thoughts out doesn't mean that you aren't smart, that you can't do the work, and that you can't be successful. And I think that's a real lesson to learn for a lot of people. Yeah, right. writing has to be a means of getting your uh, thoughts out and not a barrier. Right. And it can be That's a barrier. Right. 
Um, and let me quickly recognize our sponsor, Earlham College. Thank you very much <laughs> for contributing to the program today. Earlham Quakers. Right. I'm, I'm a kid. Uh, one more quick thing. We're running out of time. Um, but uh, Eleanor Holmes Norton runs a bit of a star factory. Her, her office has generated quite a number of council members. Talk quickly uh, about your time there. Well, when I left the council, I left the council as a staffer because my uh, boss at the time, council member Sharon Ambrose, was retiring. Mm -hmm. And I'd been with her for six years, which was a wonderful job. I didn't know quite what I wanted to do at that point. And I looked around and I heard that uh, Congresswoman Norton had an opening. I went and interviewed with her and uh, she and I worked together for two years. And she is amazing. And the, the work that she produces, I think when we were there, we were ranked 14th most effective member of Congress both in the House and the Senate combined uh, by Legislorm, which is an amazing thing. If you think about a person who doesn't have a vote, right. who's a delegate. Um, now, it was also an amazing time because we were actually in the majority. So Congresswoman Norton was uh, the majority member or chair of a committee. Uh, we sat on three committees. Um, we had support in our appropriations committee. And I always give a shout out to Congressman Serrano, Jose Serrano from New York. Congressman Serrano understands the District of Columbia better than anybody I've ever met because he comes from Puerto Rico originally, or his family does. And so he took the riders off of our budget in that year, uh, which means that we could move forward with the needle exchange program. It means that we could move forward with medical marijuana. Now, some of these things got put back on when the Republicans took back control. But during that brief two years that I was on the, on, on, on the, on the Congress uh, side of things with Congresswoman Norton, uh, I was uh, I was lucky enough to do it while we were the, the Democrats were in the majority. And um, and you mentioned quickly uh, that uh, you worked with con with uh, Councilmember Ambrose. Talk about I I am a big advocate for uh, female bosses. I've worked almost entirely for women, and it is my strong preference. So talk to me a little bit about that. Well, it's mine too. I have to say, uh, the first job I ever had was at a place called the Percival Inn which was a small restaurant. I started working there when I was 14 years old as a dishwasher. And my boss was a chef, Wendy. And ever since then, I have thought, isn't it great uh, to have a woman as a boss? And I think there should be more women in leadership positions. I think it's important, and I, and I, and I support that. I try to put as many women in my office in leadership positions for that reason, uh, to give them the leg up, to give them the opportunity to be a leader. Uh, working for Sharon, working for Congresswoman Norton, uh, even when I worked at Care First, I, I worked for Maria Tilden, who was amazing for me, just an amazing boss and a wonderful person. Um, so I, the only challenge is now that I'm my own boss, it's hard to work for a woman uh, given that I'm my boss. But I, I definitely hold myself accountable by making sure my office is diverse, that I have staff in my office that can push me to do better every day, and that's what they do. Yeah. And a shout out to women doctors as well, that I also, only women bosses, only women doctors. Is I my, have a is woman doctor preference. as well, and she's awesome. Higher, higher quality of service. <laughs> um, anyway, we're, we're starting to run a little short on time, unfortunately, but uh, we have a couple uh, ways that we tend to wrap things up on the show, uh, sort of icebreakers, not that things were that formal to start with, but we'll deformalize them a bit more even. Um, as you may remember, James Lipton from inside the Actors Studio, in an homage to Bernard Pivot of the seminal program Apostrophe, would ask all guests the same 10 thought-provoking questions. I will not be asking those questions. Instead, please rank in order of preference for you these five items. Cake, candy, cookies, ice cream, and pie. 
And I've heard you in one of your own hearings say you are not a dessert guy. I don't do dessert. So this is, maybe you could rank your five favorite uh, cruciferous vegetables. Or, I, I would uh, say, though, that if I'm going to eat any of these, I would eat vanilla ice cream first. I would eat a chocolate chip cookie second. I would have a little candy third, maybe a Three Musketeers bar or a Snickers bar. And I don't think I would ever eat cake. In fact, when I was a little kid, my mom would ask me on my birthday, what do you want for your birthday dinner? And I would always say the same thing. I want pizza. Okay. And then she would say, well, what do you want a cake? And I'd say, no, I just want pizza. And so she would put candles on another special pizza that she would make, of course, right, right there in the house, and I would have pizza. So if this pie is actually pizza pie, you could put that first. Interesting, because I would have, a farm, growing up on a farm guy, I would have thought pie would have been number one, and you well, sort of left it for last. We don't, I just don't do sweets. I never have. I'm not into sweets. I and save is, my calories for other things. Is there, is there a history of that in your family? Is that some sort of genetic no, thing? No, she had to make a cake on my birthday for everybody else. I have five brothers and sisters, plus we had all these hand, work hands, and my grandmother lived there, but she had to make cake for everyone else. So you were the only one in that group? Yep, as far as I know. That just leads me to believe there's something genetic, like going all the way back. Cause that's it's it's unusual. You know, I could see growing up in a family that didn't do that, but to be the one person. But yeah, anyway, it's I, very strange. I kind of had a sense this was not going to go so well with you because I'd heard you tell that story before a little bit. I do like lemon sorbet. That's a start. If you have a lemon sorbet at a restaurant, I will order it every single time. It, it's sort of a gateway drug, you know, to the <laughs> other desserts. Um, and then the other question, which goes even worse, is uh, do you do any impressions? We haven't had a single council member do a single impression. No. Not, it could be of a DC official. It doesn't have to be of a movie star. I'm really sorry, Josh. I do not do any, you know, any kind of impressions. I'm, I'm just not that kind of person. Okay. I just, I live for the day when a council member is like, you bet I do, and hits me up with a Ronald Reagan or a something. But Well, Nancy. But yeah, so, so anyway, listeners, we will, we will have to uh, keep holding out for that. Uh, but anyway, thank you again for joining us, listeners. Uh, tune in next time. We're at DC Radio, which is available at 96.3 on your HD4 dial or at dcradio.gov. And uh, big thanks again to our guest, Councilmember David Grasso, for being very uh, generous and indulgent with your time. Absolutely, Josh. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much. Take care. Thanks, everyone. Uh, talk to you next time. Bye-bye.